You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. All right, we have some fun verses today. We're going to talk about all kinds of things. Lust, anger, uh, divorce. It's going to be a very positive message. If this is your first time here, welcome to Salem Tabernacle. But we're going to start in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 through 20. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, that's it, that's all you have to do, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going in over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. I want you to remember that. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life, and you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days." that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, that he swore to give them. The word of the Lord. That's all you have to do is just obey everything he told you to do, and everything will be fine. You can go home now. That's easy to do, right? What we're in right now is we're in a series called Valuable. And this is a series designed, as you've heard me say, to make sure that we don't just have values, but that we are able to value other people. And the statement that I feel strongly to keep reiterating is that Salem will not be a church that holds its stances tightly, but holds loosely those who do not keep those stances. I don't want us to be a church that holds its stances on things tightly and then holds loosely people who fail to live into those stances. That is called legalism, when we're more excited about our stances than we are the people when we're more proud of what we're against than who we're for. When that is what marks out a community, it's a dangerous community. Because I don't know about you, but when I hear God say, all you have to do is obey everything I told you, I start to get nervous that I might be more on the cursed side than the blessed side. That's just me. Maybe all of you are on the blessed side and you can pray for me and intercede for me. The law was spoken this way And when it stays this way, it promotes a judgment-based culture based on behavior. And this is quite the opposite of what God had in mind. What we're going to talk about in a moment, very quickly, in in like one moment, we're going to talk about how the law of God is actually a concession. It's not the original thing he wanted to speak forth into our lives. The law spoken this way, if you obey, you're blessed, and if you fail to obey, you're cursed. The law spoken this way is not the result of our good works, and it's not the primary way God wants to get us to good works. It's what God gave us because of our hardness of heart. I'm going to read you a story. Ladies, this story makes men look pretty bad. It's not just about men, though, okay? You promise? It can be lonely up here sometimes. So don't judge us. Men, this, this not, doesn't bode well, but I'm going to read it because it's a story in the Bible. So here we go. Matthew 19, 3 to 10. 
And Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by saying, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? That's a dumb question to ask God, but they asked him anyway. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? I just want to point out here that the reason why God allowed men to give their wives a certificate of divorce isn't because God is approving that practice. It's because women who were divorced and there was no proof as to why they got divorced were seen to have been adulterous and unfaithful. And at that point in that culture, they were as good as dead. Okay, so God was saying, if you're going to divorce your wife, which I don't want you to, but if you're going to, because you will, give her a certificate of divorce so people know that she didn't cheat on you and so that she can remarry again. And, and again, in that culture, it was be- as you're about to see, it was bad enough for women who were married, let alone women who weren't. So that's why God's doing that. He's conceding something that he ultimately wants because he knows we can't handle what he ultimately wants yet. And like a good parent, he's not holding us accountable to what he ultimately wants. He's helping us get there slowly. Okay? I was told not to look for responses all day last week at the door, so I don't care if you don't respond anymore. But no, deep down I do. But I'm saying I don't because I'm lying. And we're going to talk about lying at the end. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. Do you realize how scandalous what Jesus just said was? Jesus said from the beginning, God said the two shall become one. But Moses said, you can give your wife a certificate of divorce. This is why they want to kill him, because Jesus just said what Moses told you wasn't necessarily from God. Moses said it. But from the beginning it was not so, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Are you ready for this, ladies? What Jesus just said was, from this point on, when you get married, you're not supposed to leave her. And his disciples' response was, if such is the case with a man and his wife, I'm guessing it's better not to marry. If you're going to get married, stay with her forever. And the man's first response is, well, it's probably better not to get married then. That's something a jerk says. But that story is there to show us that just because there's rule doesn't mean that rule changes hearts. Rules protect. They don't transform. The stuff that happens in between rules is what transforms. Rules create the space and the safety for transformation to happen. But this moment right here, and I'll have to say this, the disciple said to him, if such is a case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. The disciples of Jesus said, if I have to be faithful, I might as well not get into a relationship. Was that in anybody's loving devotional this morning? Jesus 
I'm one of the 12 people who are going to follow you all the way. And I have a question. Are you really saying that if I enter a relationship, I need to stay in it? Yes, because when you stay in it, you reflect me, the God who stays with you and everything. Cool. Uh, Can you make sure I don't get into a relationship then? What is this exposing in us? The law exposes our sin so that we know where and what needs to be healed. But you don't celebrate that you kept the law The law shows you why you need something more than the law. So a church that only celebrates his stances is a church that's only celebrating immature people who only keep stances but haven't become different. It's celebrating a church that will forever need milk and not solid food. So what does Jesus do? He preaches something called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And I want to see, I want you to see how this sermon begins. Matthew 5, 1 and 2. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Jesus climbs a mountain like Moses. Jesus breathes out a new law like Moses, disciples follow him, and then there are also crowds. This is a recapitulation of Mount Sinai. When Moses is on the mountain, the elders of the tribes of Israel are waiting for him, and the people of Israel are there as well, and they're waiting to hear the law. And Jesus is going to start saying things like this. You've heard that it was said in days of old, but I say to you, And what Jesus is doing is he's re-quoting the Torah, he's re-quoting the Jewish scriptures, and he's saying, you've heard it was said, but I say to you. The most important reason for that statement is he's letting us know that the people he's talking to are now the new Israel, the people of God. And they're not listed. Their race, their gender, their ethnicity is not listed. They're just the crowds. Because everyone on equal footing is part of this new community. Amen? His disciples are specifically stated as following him. And when it says he spoke to them, people and scholars aren't sure if the them is the disciples or if it's the crowds or if it's the disciples and the crowds. The best thing that I can personally come up with is God speaks to everybody, but it's always his disciples that disseminate what he says the most to other people. And so it is really the job of the church, the disciples of Christ, to follow him up a mountain to listen to this wonderful sermon that is so easy to follow, and we're about to hear a few of them, and then come down that mountain and live with each other according to this new and fulfilled law. So what is this law? Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Here's one thing about the, the Hebrew law. The Hebrew law is essentially do not do. And when you define yourself by what you don't do, I have a friend who has a friend who's a pastor, and they always say, whenever they're asked, what kind of church do you pastor? They pastor a no drinking, no smoking, no alcohol, no fun church. I'm just kidding. (laughs) 
when you define yourself by what you don't do, there's no quality of life to that. There's no quality of life to saying, I am what I don't do. And if you just follow the Torah, it allows you to avoid harmful things, but it also allows you to avoid other people. So there is, a, there is already a saying in Jesus' day, which is, do not do unto others what you would not want them to do unto you. But when Jesus quotes that, he flips it and says, do unto others what you would want them to do unto you. If all I'm doing is not doing to you what I wouldn't want you to do to me, then that means I cannot harm you, but I never have to be a part of your life. I just have to not do things to you. But if Jesus is saying, do unto others what you would want them to do unto you, it is now incumbent upon me to have to enter your life and bless you the way that I would want to be blessed. And I don't know about you, but I'm arrogant, and I really want to be blessed, which means I should be the best friend you have if I want to bless you the way that I want to be blessed. Amen? This isn't a new law. Because if the Sermon on the Mount was a new law, then it would not be a better covenant. It would be an absolutely worse covenant. You're about to see why. It is impossible to do what Jesus says to do. It's easier to fulfill the Mosaic covenant than it is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is about to preach a message that would not sell any tapes or podcasts or CDs or A-tracks or anything else. He would not sell any of them. That's why he said it once and makes us preach it every year. Because he's like, you tell them. I don't want to tell them that again. <laughs> Last week, <clears throat> we talked about being torn. And I want to put up a graphic that I, I wish we came up with last week, um, but we're going to put it up this week. And it is this idea that we're stuck as people in between, am I getting it right or am I getting it wrong? We're trapped in this world of am I getting it right or am I getting it wrong? And last week, we talked about the world where we want to just tell everybody to follow rules, and then we know they'll be safe if they're following the rules, versus this life where we just want everybody to be free to do what they want to do, and if it feels right to them, then it's right. And here's the reality. If you love somebody, you, you know why this feels good. You know why you would want to tell them to follow all the rules. If you're a good parent, you should want your children to follow all the rules, but if you also love somebody, you know that, it, and if you're being honest with yourselves, you want to tell them to do what they feel is right and enjoy their life. And if you love somebody, you're torn between these two realities. That's what we talked about last week. This week, we're talking about our own personal tornness of, am I getting it right versus am I getting it wrong? And we live in this perpetual hell of wondering, am I getting it right or am I getting it wrong? It's, am I being good or am I being evil? And it's always funny and it's not cliche to say, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the only command God ever gave us at the beginning of what not to do. Don't eat the fruit that makes you think, am I good or am I evil? That was never meant for you. And here's the reality. Harsh judgment, our judgmentalism, not God's, our judgmentalism entered the world the minute we ate that fruit. 
The minute we took it upon ourselves to develop our sense of what can be good and what can be evil, we started judging other people horribly and maybe even worse than that, ourselves horribly. And to this day, we have Christians who, when they hear the Sermon on the Mount, get more anxiety than when they hear the Torah because it's even harder to judge, am I getting it right or am I getting it wrong? And I will say this until I'm blue in the face, and this is dangerous, and listen, you don't have to agree with me on this, but honestly, I'd, I know that God would rather us be free and joyful in making our decisions and accidentally make a wrong one than to be enslaved and gripped by analysis paralysis, always trying to make the right one. Didn't say go ahead and make all the wrong ones. I'm just saying he doesn't want us assessing our lives in this kind of torn place. He wants us to live a life of healthy repentance, knowing that he is the life that reconciles this disaster. But before I'll get there, let's talk about how terrible Jesus makes it. So here's some points on his Sermon on the Mount. If you read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you're technically reading his, like, Harvard outline. These are the bullet points of one of the greatest sermons ever put together. And here we go. And if you don't like what I'm about to read, Jesus said it. I'm reading what he preached. I'm not preaching my own sermon from this point on. Anger. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. That's terrible. So if you offer, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. I'm not impressed with your presence if you're not reconciled to each other. I inserted that as a footnote to his sermon. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Well, most people standing there who heard that were getting that one right. And then Jesus says, but if you're angry with your brother, you're liable to the same judgment as if you've murdered them. Raise your hand if you've ever been angry with somebody before. You are a murderer, according to Jesus. Next point, Jesus. Thank you. I'm a serial killer. I've killed most of you. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. Everybody's so frustrated with should we have the right to bear arms according to Jesus we shouldn't have the right to bear mouths Jesus is healing the lead up to murder you want to know the worst part about what he just said I'm going to tell you the worst part about what Jesus said and I say this knowing he's hearing me right now The worst part about what he said is if you're offering your gift at the altar, here's what I wish it said. You're offering your gift at the altar, and if there you realize that you have an issue against somebody else, go and be reconciled. That's what I wish it said. But what he says is if you're offering your gift at the altar and there realize someone has an issue with you. 
I would love to remember that I have something against Stephanie. Stephanie, I can't stand you sometimes. I want to be reconciled so I could tithe. Is that okay? I want to offer a sacrifice of praise. Stop being the way you're being. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Oh, how he loves me like a sloppy wet kiss. Praise the Lord, right? That's what we want to do, but that's not what it says. It says if you remember that someone has an issue with you, go and be reconciled, which means what he's saying, and he's saying it nicer than I'm going to say it, if you realize someone has an issue with you, whether you agree with it or not, go repent. Now I'm mad at Jesus, which means I murdered him. And we did. We're having a Good Friday service to commemorate it. If someone has an issue with you, go and be reconciled. Well, where do I get the strength to do that? You get it from Jesus, who before he fully offered himself to the Father, knew that everybody had an issue with him. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he reconciled with his brother before he offered himself. That's where we get the strength for that. Next. A little thing called lust. You ready, Ian? <laughs> Everyone on the podcast is judging you now because they don't know. <clears throat> Matthew 5, 27 to 30. Back in the day, we had some prophet people that used to come here, and they would always call you out on this stuff. And I would always try to look like I'm taking notes whenever they were moving about the room. I've literally sat in the balcony on certain times. We won't do that today. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone that looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, notice he's talking to men. It's not interesting to everybody else. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbors. Who's he talking to? Because we're the worst. You know, I say so many good things up here and nobody says a darn thing. I diss men once and everybody agrees all of a sudden. Shame on all of you. Shame on all of you. Men, let's just go downstairs and finish our Fruity Pebbles and move on. Man, I almost got diabetes yesterday. I ate so much of that stuff. I had the shakes I'm just trying to avoid what he says next. If your right eye causes you to sin, specifically in the area of lust, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than to have your whole body thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than have your whole body go into hell. If, my, if I cut off every body part that made me sin, I'd be a stump. <laughs> I'd have to cut off my elbow for some weird reason. Like, this is just what we do. I want to say this, that the reason why Jesus is making the crazy analogy of cutting off your hand is because what Jesus is saying is this. We all know that you can use people with your body, but you can also use them with your mind. And he's making an association between what the mind does and what the body does and says they're both the same thing. So you've been told of old, don't physically use people. But there's a way in which that I could, I, on, the, on the surface, I could avoid doing you any harm but be using you and raping you in my mind. Serious. 
But I want to say, what time is it? Okay. That lust really in the Bible began with food. It wasn't pizza. Shut up. <laughs> when Eve, at one point in her life, Eve was looking at a tree in a way that Adam wished she was looking at him. Okay, you didn't like that one? That's probably why Adam ate the fruit right away. He's like, oh, that's what you like? Okay, fine, I'll jump in. And <laughs> Esau sells his birthright for a meal, and Hebrews calls it sexual immorality. Watch this. <clears throat> Esau says to Jacob, I'll sell you my birthright if you give me something to eat. I'm dying. And Esau's father, Isaac, says, I'm about to die. Go make me food so I could bless you. This misassociation with food. The reason why in the Bible it starts here is because it says Eve took and ate. Adam took and ate. That's what lust is. Lust is taking. That's why Jesus reverses it in the Eucharist and he hands us the food and says receive. Lust takes, love gives. Lust takes, love receives. So anytime, not just in the area of sexual immorality, anytime you see a person as an object for your own betterment, it's lust. Anytime. Jesus on the cross says, I thirst. And doesn't, he is the river of life itself. And he waits to receive drink because he refuses to lust for it. That's where we get the strength for this. It is definitely a touchy subject. And I want to say, when it comes to anger, Jesus is talking about deep within the heart. And there is a time and a place to realize that somebody's angry and tell them that they shouldn't be. And then there's a time and a place to sit there and think about what may have happened in this person's life. There's a difference between being angry and struggling with the power of anger. There's a difference between being lustful and wanting to discipline yourself so that you can work on it and then suffering under the power of it because of some trauma or some abuse or something like that. And it's not always easy to discern the difference between the two. So there's a difference between somebody who's committing a lowercase s sin and then there's somebody who's under the sway of an uppercase s sin. And so you don't know where the anger's coming from. It might be a moment of rebellion or it might be a learned behavior that happened a long time ago. Again, Isaac is revealed as saying, I can't bless you unless I eat. So it's no wonder his son is saying, I'll give you my birthright so I can eat. The learned behavior. So it's just not so easy to call it out and be like, that's lustful. You should just discipline yourself. You don't know where it's coming from. That's why Jesus spoke this entire sermon to a community, because it takes the spirit working through the baptized community of faith to work, things, to work these things out in all of our lives. Nobody can work them out on their own. That's what I told the men yesterday. The wise men were wise because they traveled in a group. Herod was unwise because he was always an island. We have to travel in a pact in order to work through our stuff, because some of my sin, you can just call it right out, and it's my fault. Some of it has been built in for a very long time. 
generations, and they're not the same thing. Okay, that's why the gift of discernment is very important. But let's keep moving on with this delightful message of Jesus. Divorce. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, which Jesus basically just made anything, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. We have to see that phrase in the same dramatic terminology as the phrase before. He's not telling us to cut off our hands every time we sin or cut out our eye every time. Maybe that's why I have this lazy eye. Anyway. (laughs) Epiphany. He's not telling us to do those crazy things. He's using exaggerated language. And he's also not saying that if you're in an abusive situation, you can't get divorced. Because here's the reality. If somebody's physically beating you, that is sexual immorality. If somebody is living only for themselves and it's bringing destruction into your life, That is lust. So Jesus isn't saying there's only one reason why you should get divorced, ladies, and anything else. If he's cheating on you, you can divorce him. But if he's kicking your face in every day, you got to stay with him. That's not what he's saying. He's using as dramatic of a phrase as he used in the previous section, saying when you enter into a relationship, it should be your soul's full intent to stay in it for better and for worse. But like I said about anger and like I said about lust, there's always those outlying situations where you have to handle them isolatedly and differently because somebody's humanity is not supposed to be destroyed for decades just so they can stay married. But I say that saying we also can't fake that our humanity is being destroyed just because it's difficult and say that that's grounds for divorce either. Oath-making. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not, take an off, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, like I have that problem. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now hold on to that. And look at this. Ian's going to put up one more slide. Look at how masterful this sermon is by Jesus. One thing leads to another. Look at this. Anger is when, when I'm losing my temper, it's when I can't bear to not have it my way. And so I'm going to use intimidation tactics to make sure things are my way. I need life to be so my way. I need to be agreed with so much. I need you to see it my way so much that when you don't, I'm going to intimidate you to try to get you to. Well, guess what that is? That is the spirit of lust. And guess what lust leads to? The breakdown of relationships. And once you've broken faith, now you're the kind of person whose yes is no longer valid, so you need to say things like, I swear on my mother's grave. 
Do you see that? When you start with the very first point that Jesus made, when you allow anger to be the way that you get your way, you instantly slide right into lust, which is taking and not receiving, which means you instantly slide into the breakdown of relationships because you're no longer trustworthy, which means now when you say, I'll be there in 15 minutes, people don't believe you anymore because you weren't true to your word over there. So why would you be true about that? You see that slide right down. So if you find that you're the kind of person who is habitually saying, I promise, I swear, this time I mean it. I swear on my mother's grave, this time. If you're that kind of person, something along this line has gone wrong because nobody believes you when you say yes or no. I'm not going to do that anymore. Okay. I promise I'll do this. I don't think you will. I swear. It is the immediate result of realizing we're not a trustworthy person because we've broken somewhere along this line. You can all go home now. Appreciate it. What do we do? Here's what we don't do. You ready? You don't try harder. I'm going to try harder not to get angry. I'm going to try harder not to lust. I'm going to try harder to be a more faithful person. How how much does that work? How many, again, let's just harp on New Year's resolutions. Who's still going to the gym? (laughs) Okay. This year, I promise it's going to be different. This year, I'm getting into shape. Okay. What do we do? If it's not an issue of trying harder... Trying harder if you're not transformed is just going to lead to more frustration of messing up in the same thing again anyway. Here's the story that really every sermon ever preached should end with this story. And ultimately it does. Luke 18. He also told them this parable. To some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. I.e. to some who trusted in themselves that if they try harder they could get it right this time. And treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed like this. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That right there has been turned into what's called the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus, son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, that man went down to his home justified. Justified. Not forgiven justified. God, I have followed all of the stances and our tenets of faith. And I'm so glad I am not like people who are immoral, who lose their temper, who are greedy. I'm so thankful I'm not like people who don't believe in you. And then there's another person who's saying, I have done and continue to do all the things that you've told me not to do. Have mercy on me. And it doesn't say that he went 
home forgiven. That wouldn't help us. It says he went home justified. Study that word for a little while in the Greek, and this becomes extremely scandalous. What it says is he went home the kind of person who does everything right, even though he won't. The word that Jesus uses is a word that means to call something a thing, and it becomes that thing. It means to be reckoned just. When we repent, we don't just get forgiven, because that would mean that the ends could justify the means. We actually become the kinds of people who do those things we needed to repent of less. Every time we repent, we change. This is why Jesus tells us daily to pray. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us because we need to receive the gift of justification so that we can give the gift of justification. I say all of that to say this. That in Deuteronomy, it says, I will call heaven and earth to witness against you. My wife, a couple of weeks ago, went to a Greek church in Connecticut for her grandfather's memorial service. And the, the bishop there preached on how the things going wrong in the earth are not God making them happen, but the results of our terrible decisions. Right? And one of the things she said to me was, don't, she asked me this question, do you think that the things that are going on, just weather-wise and that kind of stuff, is an indictment against us for the way that we live? Now, I'm, when we're having this discussion, I'm thinking about this Deuteronomy verse that I have to preach in a couple of weeks, and, and God says, I'm going to call heaven and earth to witness against you. And when you look at the earth and the way it's responding to us, It's holding in itself the memory of our wrongdoing, and it's groaning and condemning us at every turn for how we've lived. But what does John see at the very end of the Bible? In Revelation 21, behold, I saw a a new earth, one that doesn't hold in it the memory of what you've done wrong, but one that holds in it the righteousness of what Christ did right. Well, why does that matter? Because real repenting cannot come if there isn't a hope that gives you greater awareness than the thing that you're sinning in. There's a reason why it's easy to value other things in such an insanely infatuating light that they can become idols because in some ways they actually give you hope or they give you meaning or they give you relationship or they give you the stimulation that you need that you're not getting somewhere else. The church has been telling people to turn away from these things, but if we don't preach hope, you're going to turn away from something that's giving you false hope and you're going to turn to nothing and eventually... We need to realize the goodness of the gospel is that every time we repent, we don't just get forgiven, we get made more right. And then that gift needs to be given as freely as it was received. 
So the issue with the Sermon on the Mount isn't try harder to be this way. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus expressing what his life is like and what our lives can slowly become when we live faithfully in his body, the church, by his spirit, and we live into our baptism into Christ. Let's stand to our feet this morning. Steph and the worship team saying, <clears throat> don't have time to maintain these regret, regrets when I think about the way he loves me. I don't have time, listen to this phrase, it just struck me during the worship service. I don't have time to maintain these regrets when I think about the way. It just struck me that there's a way in which when our mind is not fixated on God, not only do we have regrets, but we actually maintain them. Whenever they start to fall away, we actually prop them back up again. We change the oil in our, regret, in our regrets to make sure that they function properly like a car. And it says, I don't have time to maintain it when I think about the way. There's a way in which when you spend your time thinking about Christ and you fixate your mind on him in the same way that you could be fixated on so many things that you don't maintain your car and then your car eventually breaks down and goes away, what that song is saying is there's a way you can think about Jesus long enough that your regrets are no longer maintained and they break down and fall away. Well, where does that start? It starts in this phrase, do this in remembrance of me. Not in remembrance of your sin, in remembrance of me. Well, you're saying to ignore my sin? When I remember Jesus, I come face to face with my sin in a way that I never come face to face with at any other time. But the moment I come face to face with it in Christ, I also come face to face with my atonement and my justification and the ability to live new. You cannot look at Jesus and not look at your sin but you cannot look at Jesus and your sin and not become new. And so what do we do for the rest of our life? We don't try harder. We come to his table. We ask the spirit again and again and again to restore us, to make us new. And we slowly in this life together become the kinds of people who hold each other up to live differently. Can we do that for each other? Why don't you hold the hand of the person next to you? You need the person next to you. And no individual can live this life well or be made new or whole alone. And I'm telling you right now, Salem, we are blessed in this room to have people whose hands we're holding. But the church has also cast people out of the, its doors because they're not living into behaviors. But it's the life in the church that leads to new behaviors anyway. And if we're constantly kicking people out who don't live like we think they should live, which, by the way, if that was the case, you might as well kick me out right now. My family's here. They know. I'm not hiding anything. We have to be the kind of people who receive God's hospitality and then offer it. Holy Spirit, we offer you this bread and this cup. We bring it to you. And we offer it to you. And the best we can do is offer you brokenness. The best we can do is offer you juice that's been spilled. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would receive our brokenness, descend on it, and make it for your people, the body and blood of Jesus, 
the food and drink of new and unending life in him. We ask that you do that with bread and juice so that we know that when we offer you ourselves as broken and spilled, that not only will you put us back together, but you will use our brokenness to manifest the very presence of God who heals and restores and reconciles brokenness. So we offer you this broken bread and we ask that you descend on it and make it the presence of God. And in the same way, we offer you our broken selves and we pray that we would become the body of Christ for the life of the world. Forgive us of our sins. Forgive us for what we've done and what we've left undone. Forgive us for not loving our neighbor as ourself. Forgive us for the lust that causes anger, for the lust that causes us to use other people, for the lust that causes the breakdown of relationship, for the lust that causes us to not be trustworthy people. We offer that to you in this bread. We offer it to you in this cup. And we pray that you would restore it. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, the ushers will release you from the back to the front. Come to the table this morning. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.